0: Now, if you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, you know I love John 6. Um, My prayer is that um, after we're finished with John 6, that you will love it as well. I don't know how many sermons we've had in John 6, but it's quite a few by now, but we've come to... uh, verse 41. So you remember by now, you know by now that John 6 has three major parts. They're all connected together, but there's the sign, the miracle, of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Jesus took a little lad's lunch of uh, five loaves and a few fish and fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And then the next part of the chapter is the storm that uh, the disciples experienced on the the Sea of Galilee as they were crossing over that night to the other side and Jesus came walking to them on the water. And then the rest of the chapter is the sermon. So you have the sign, the storm, and the sermon. The sermon is in the form of a discourse. The crowd that saw the feeding of the 5,000 has come looking for Jesus and they found him on the other side on the west side now of, of uh, Galilee um, and Capernaum in the synagogue. And he has a discussion, uh, really it's a teaching with them. Uh, he talks to the crowd. I don't know how many of those 5,000 plus people came, but there's a large crowd. He addresses first the crowd, and then he's going to talk to a per- certain part of the crowd called the Jews. The Jews are John's word for the leaders of the Jews, so he's talking about the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, uh, those leaders of the Jews, and we come to that part tonight when he's talking to them. We'll also read a little bit tonight about, he's going to also talk to some would-be disciples, disciples who would follow Jesus if they could follow him on their own terms. Finally, at the end of the chapter, we're not going to get to read tonight, but he talks to his 12 disciples. Through all of that discussion with them, Jesus brings out three gifts of the Father, three gifts of the Holy, of our Heavenly Father. We've looked at two of those so far. We just finished the gift of the Father to the Son, That was the gift in eternity past when God chose a people and gave them to his son. And uh, you remember that I think I gave you 14 points. Did you get them all? 14 points of that eternal covenant of redemption. It was a paternal gift from the father to the son. It was a gift of people. It was a pre-creation gift. It was a precursor. That means that and this is very important that from that gift, from that decree, flows all of redemptive history. Everything comes from that. So the coming of Jesus, which was the next, the other gift that we talked about, and everything else flows from that wellspring of that gift from the Father to the Son of a people. And then we talked about those people that they were picked by the Father, They're a partial people. That means it's not everybody, every human being. But he uh, speaks of them as a whole, as a plenary people, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, and so forth. And he also speaks of us very individually and personally, particularly. And then uh, when Russ was sick, I had to finish on Sunday morning the others. So I had them in a little bit different form, but hopefully you caught the last several of the points from the Eternal Covenant Redemption. That is that all those who he chose will come to Jesus. They all are kept by Jesus and they all will be resurrected by Jesus and they will all spend eternity with Jesus. And I think the title of my message that morning was uh, something about how rich we are in Christ. Those are truly riches that we have because we are given to Jesus Christ. We belong to him. And then we ended by the, the last two points that all of that, the foundation of all of that is the will of God and the work of God. And Jesus repeats that three times. This is the will of my Father. His decree, his will, his eternal plan for us. And that is all worked out powerfully by his own working. So that was one gift, the gift of a people to Jesus from the Father. The other gift that we looked at from the Father was the gift of Jesus to people. Okay, so that was in verse 32. We began to see that. Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, And then, of course, in verse 35, Jesus identifies himself as that true bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So because God gave a people to Jesus, God gives Jesus to those people to redeem them as the bread of life. So tonight, we're going to begin in verse 41 to look at the third gift of the Father. So follow along as I read and see if you see this third gift. I'm going to start in verse 41 and go all the way through 65. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. The Jews, remember, are the leaders. These are the Pharisees, scribes, the ones who should know better. They were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue. At first they were grumbling, now they're arguing with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me." This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats of this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, these are the would-be disciples, not the twelve. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing that his disciples were grumbling at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. May God bless the reading of his word. So, did you see it? Okay, in verse, very last verse that I read is very clear. Verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is what? Granted, granted. okay, that's the same word as in, Verse 37, where it says, The Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay, That's the gift of the Father to Jesus of a people. It's the same word forgive, that we read in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Same word. Three gifts from the Father. This is the third one. Notice in verse 65 that Jesus says, for this reason I have said to you. So this verse when he says that uh, no one can come to me unless it's granted, given, something that's a gifted to him from the Father, he's referring back to something else that he already said, which is verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so before we get into this third gift of the Father, I want to just say some general, give you some general observations about this new passage that we're getting into. First one is that this passage reminds us that we must Not only preach biblical truth, but we must preach biblical truth in biblical proportion. You get that? We must preach biblical truth in biblical proportion. For example, Jesus is talking about New Testament believing in Jesus, right? He's the bread of life, but he's grounding that in the Old Testament, isn't he? Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, he grounds it in the Old Testament. So we must not just preach the New Testament, that the New Testament and the Old. I'll say more about that later. Another example is that you see in this passage the universal offer of salvation. And you also see that this offer has limited acceptance. Okay, so for example, in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. It's a universal offer. We're to preach the gospel to everybody. But only those who are given to Jesus will accept. For example, in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Another example is, you see both divine sovereignty and you see human responsibility. Again and again, we're told in this passage that we are to believe. So, for example, verse 47, Tru- Truly I say to you, he who what? believes has eternal life. That's a responsibility put upon us. But we see also the other hand, divine sovereignty, As we just read in verse 44, no one comes unless the Father draws him. The other thing we see in this passage is that salvation is Trinitarian. So we don't just preach salvation as a work of Jesus, right? He accomplished it on the cross. He paid for our redemption in full. But the Father, in verse 44, draws us. All right? The Son gives his life in verse 51. In verse sixty-three, you see that it's the Spirit who gives life. So we preach biblical truth, but we must also preach it in biblical proportion. That's one general observation. The other general another one is that I want you to notice that the the attitude, general attitude of Jesus in this passage is that he is not at all interested in being popular. So you notice that this crowd who Jesus just fed the day before, a large portion of this crowd had just come from the other side. They were looking for him on the east side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. They couldn't find him. They all got in boats, came over to Capernaum, looking for him, found him in finally in the synagogue. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth when they come up to him is, you just seeking me. Not because you saw the sign, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. No, glad you came, glad to see you, glad you're here, glad you came to hear me. Just a rebuke. He does the same thing to the, the leaders, to the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jews. They're trying to figure out how, how can he have come from heaven when we know his mom and his dad. And Jesus doesn't say, well, let let me try to explain it to you. Jesus just just says, stop arguing. Don't complain among yourselves because it's useless. You'll never understand because no one can come unless the Father draws him. Another rebuke. To the would-be disciples, you know, who are trying to figure out, I mean, he said some really... To a Jew, repulsive things, right? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're just trying to figure it out. How can this guy say this? And, you know, it sounds like cannibalism. And Jesus doesn't come alongside him and say, let me try to explain this to you. No, he says again, some of you don't believe, and you can't believe unless the Father grants it. He's not trying to be popular. Thirdly, third general observation that's important as we come to this passage is to make sure that we don't make the same mistake that they were making, which is to try to take the words of Jesus literally. Okay, so when he says, starts talking about the manna, the bread from heaven, they're thinking about something that they can eat with their mouths. Mm -hmm. that will fill their stomachs Jesus is talking spiritually isn't he he's talking about their soul that there is true manna that will satisfy their soul he's not talking physically and when he talks about eating and drinking eating his flesh and drinking his blood he's not talking about cannibalism he's not talking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood he's talking about believing. Now let me show you that. So follow along in your text as I show you some of these verses. So verse 29, we'll start there. Like a verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom whom he has sent. So what's he talking about? He's talking about believing. And so he gives this Old Testament foreshadowing Old Testament picture of manna in the wilderness. You know, verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what do you do with this bread? Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who what? Believes in me will never thirst. Okay, so to come to Jesus and to believe in Jesus are not two different things. Those are parallel statements. He who comes is he who believes. Coming is believing. Believing is coming. All right. So he who believes, he's not talking about coming to Jesus physically because they just did that. They came all the way from the west, from the east side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side to Capernaum to find him. They came, but they came physically. Jesus isn't talking about physical coming. He's talking about believing. Verse 36, but I said to you, you have seen me, yet you do not what? Believe. He's talking about believing. All that the Father gives me, in verse 37, will come. What does come mean? It means believe. We know that from the previous verse. So all that the Father gives me will believe in me. The one who believes I will never cast out. Come, believe. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees his Son, and what? Believes in him, will have eternal life. Verse 44, no one can come. Okay, come as believe in this passage. No one can believe in me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me or believes in me. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. Okay, what do you do with bread? You eat it, right? And he's using that picture for believing. So all he's saying is he who um, this is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may believe and not die. I think it was Augustine who said if you believe you've eaten. Okay? Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. How do you live forever? You believe. He who believes will live forever. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. It's talking about believing, not literally eating and drinking. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. How do you get eternal life? By believing, not eating physically. He who eats my flesh in 56 and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Okay, you get the picture, right? I could go on. There's more of them there. But it's about believing, okay? It's not about literally coming. It's not about literally eating or drinking. It's about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's big for John, right? You remember we started uh, John in John 20, 28, and 29, where, Jesus, where John says the purpose that he's writing is that uh, we would believe, that we would see the signs, understand the signs, and that we would believe and have life in his name. So what Jesus is displaying in this passage, the reason for his attitude... The reason that he's, his attitude reminds me a little bit more of when he cleansed the temple. When he took the scourge and drove out the money changers because they were turning his father's house into a house of merchandise. So Jesus here is displaying his righteous anger against unbelief. And make no mistake about it, unbelief is sin. Sin. Turn back just a few pages to chapter 3, and you'll see that. Chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then verse 36, same chapter. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So I was recently happened to be reading a sermon by Spurgeon. Um, title is The Sin of Unbelief. Let me just give you his points to give you, because his point is that uh, this is why the sin of unbelief is extremely hideous. Number one, unbelief is the parent of every other iniquity. Number two, unbelief not only begets, but fosters sin. Number three, unbelief disables a man from the performance of any good work. Number four, unbelief has been severely punished, like at the flood, like Israel in the wilderness when they had to wander for 40 years. Unbelief is the damning sin. We just read that in John 3. Unbelief brings the punishment of the eternal wrath of God. And in this chapter, Jesus is surrounded by unbelief. I mean, just think about it. The day before, he performed the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 in the presence of 5,000 plus. So there are plus those 5,000 men plus women and children. Who knows how many there were? 10,000, 15,000. He demonstrated clearly that he was God. And now today, this day, the crowd, he says to them, you don't believe. The Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, they don't believe. These would-be disciples who've been following Jesus around, Jesus around. he says they don't believe. So you start out with five to 10 to 15,000 and you end up at the end of the chapter with his 12 disciples. And one of them is a traitor. So you end up with really 11. So he, the holy, righteous son of God is surrounded by unbelief. I think that's the reason for his attitude. Righteous attitude. So unbelief doesn't just describe the Jews, does it? It's all of us. It was all of us. So if you can remember the day that you believed, that you first believed, the day that you were converted, you woke up that morning and you were just like them. You were unbelievers so i can remember you know <clears throat> the day in 1968 it was a friday morning and i woke up that morning in unbelief that night i would go to a bible study that i didn't want to go to i didn't want to be at but that morning i woke up in unbelief so what would it take to get me out of that unbelief into believing. The sin of unbelief into believing. What would it take to bring me to saving faith in Jesus? What what did it take the day you believed? Look at verse 44. 4 Jesus says no one can come to me. Let that sink in for a minute. He he didn't say most people can't come to me, most people don't not one. Not me back in on that Friday in 1968, not you. No one can come And remember, he's talking to the religious leaders, the, the the Jews, scribes and Pharisees. There's a guy, people who, if anybody would be able to come, they, they should be able to come. They knew the Old Testament. No one can come. And what he was saying to them is, in other words, you're trying to figure me out. You're trying to figure out, you know, how did this guy whose mom and dad we know, how did he come from heaven? Jesus says... Just forget it. Don't even try, because you can't. You're not going to figure him out. You're not going to understand. You're not going to believe by your own power, your intellect, your whatever. It's absolutely useless, because the word he uses there in verse 44, no one can come to me, that word can is the word dunamis, the word for power, ability. No one has the ability to come to me, period, period. You don't have the ability in and of themselves. So that night when I was sitting in that Bible study so long ago, was it going to be the charismatic personality of the teacher or his gifted teaching? Would it be the welcoming kids or the great singing? Would it be that I was going to come to my senses, I would come to my mind, you know, was it my will, my emotions? What was it that was going to bring me to come to Jesus? So, I'll give you just two passages that describe me that night and described you the day that you believed, before you believed. We read one this morning in our responsive reading in 2 Corinthians 4: the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We're blinded. We're blinded by Satan, we're enslaved. In chains? No way. Ephesians 2, 1 3 says, And you were, what? Dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, none of those, nothing, in me, nothing in anybody there at that Bible study that night would bring me to faith in Jesus. But look at verse 44 again. No one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father unless the Father does something. There is nothing in me, there's nothing in you, there's nothing in heaven or earth that can bring us to saving faith except for God. God alone. And that's exactly what we read in Isaiah, by the way. And Did you see that? It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that's exactly what happened the night that I believed, the day that you believed is God rent the heavens and he came down and he did it. So the only solution, the only answer to human inability is divine intervention. And that's what God the Father does. That's his gift. That's the third gift of the Father. So in my life, in your life, you know, at God's appointed time, he comes down, he rends the heavens, and he comes down and he acts in sovereign power to bring you to saving faith. So now we can put the three gifts together. You can see how they work together, right? All right, In eternity past, God chose a people and gave them to Jesus. Because of that, he sends Jesus to redeem us because we're sinners. And in our lifetime, at a certain time, he comes down and he saves us, brings us to saving faith in Jesus, unites us to him as his. He fulfills the promise to his son. Now, look again at verse 44. What does it say that the father does when he intervenes? All right. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That helps explain verse 37, right? Verse 37 says, All that the Father gives to me comes. How is it that we come? We come because the Father is drawn. The Father who draws us. Now, I want to show you, uh, it's an interesting word the Greek word is also used in John 21. So turn over to John 21. I want to show you this word, Helkuo, for you Greek scholars. So you remember this passage. This is one of the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. Uh, Peter and disciples decided to go fishing. So they've been fishing all night, didn't catch anything, and so this is what happens. Just as day was a break- this is verse 4, John 21, 4. Just as day was a breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to, what does your translation say? Haul. Anybody draw? Did somebody have draw? Haul, draw. Drag, literally the word means. It's the same word. Jesus draws us as what is used here of them catching these fish. They were able to draw, to pull, to drag to draw them in because of the quantity of fish. So the word literally means to drag. So they were, um, that's what the Father does. He draws us. Okay, so there's some things you can say right off the bat about this drawing, right? That the Father does. It's gracious. None of us deserved it. Not one. It's unaided. Okay, we've already seen that. We have no help to offer. It's sovereign. It's according to his will. That's the context back here in John 6, right? Jesus repeats it over and over again. This is the will of my Father. It's totally sovereign. It's his will, his time, his way. He doesn't wait for us to decide that we want him. So I've done a lot of fishing in my life and not one time has a fish ever come up to the boat and say, I want to be yours. Sinners don't do it either. It's unfailing, right? Look at, Remember verse 37? All that the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. As a matter of fact, our very verse here, verse 44, says that I will raise him up on the last day. They're going to make it all the way to the end. It's unfailing. And it's permanent because it results in what kind of life? Eternal life. Eternal life. So that's what happened to me that night when I believed. That's what happened to you the day or the night that you believed. God came down and he acted with his sovereign, powerful, outstretched arm. That's what he did for us. But what does it mean that God draws us, that he drags us, whatever term you're, you use there? Because we're not fish, Right? So what does it mean that he draws us? For that we have to go to the next verse. Verse 45 explains the drawing in verse 44. What does it mean that he draws us? Verse 45. It is written in the prophets. So in order to understand New Testament conversion, us coming to Jesus, Jesus says, you've got to look to the Old Testament. That's incredible. I will tell you that one of the greatest gifts that Reformed theology has brought to me is my Old Testament. So I grew up going to church every day, but I grew up being taught that large sections of the Old Testament were not for me. So imagine my surprise when I went to college and the first class that I took was Old Testament survey. And for three and a half months, every day, and every page, now, the Old Testament was truth for me. So, it's incredible. Jesus says, go to the Old Testament. So, the Old Testament is for us. I mean, it's in what Jesus did on the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? You know, he showed them in the Old Testament scriptures the things concerning himself. It says in all of the scriptures. All of them. Not part. It's all for us. This verse that he's referring to would be one of the verses that I would have been taught when I was growing up. It wasn't for me, it's just for Israel. So, what does he do? All right, verse 45 It is written in the prophets, and they. Shall all be what? Taught by God. So how is it that God draws us to himself? How does he draw us to faith in Jesus? He teaches us. That's, uh, by the way, Isaiah 54, 13 that Jesus is quoting. Uh, We would read that whole chapter if we had time, but uh, we don't. So sometime on your own, read that. So Isaiah 54 comes right after what? Isaiah 53. you got to get those all together, right? 52, 53, and I think we're going to end tonight in Isaiah 54. It's because it's for us. all right. So you read it on yourself sometime. But that's what Jesus is referring to. So the Father irresistibly draws us to saving faith in Christ Jesus by divine intervention, which is... This teaching, divine instruction, that it refers to. So the title of my message tonight is "Our Divine Professor." Now I've been blessed throughout my life uh, since I believe with a good number of incredible professors, but even if you were to put them all together, none of them can do what God does when He teaches. Our divine. Let me tell you a little bit about our divine professor. His textbook is what. The Scriptures. It is written. It's always, it is written. It's the Scriptures. The subject is always Jesus. What did Jesus show him from all the Old Testament Scriptures? The things about himself. In this passage, Jesus says, who is the bread of life? I am. Jesus. It's about Jesus. His subject is Jesus. The result... Of his teaching. Is that we come. We come in saving faith to Jesus. Verse 45. For it is written in the prophets. They shall all be taught by God. Everyone. Get that. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father. Everyone he teaches does what? Comes to him. Believes. That's how powerful his drawing is. No one resists. Success rate is 100%. And his aim is for us to know the Lord. Now, it says here that when we come, we have eternal life. So listen to what Jesus says, and this is where I get that we, his aim is that we know him. John 17, 1-3 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. See how that ties into our passage? And this is eternal life, that you what? that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that we know him. Now, look at that verse again, verse 45, and you're going to see two very important words that describe his teaching to some degree. Everyone who has what? Heard. And everyone who has what? Learned. Everyone is heard. So remember we read from Second Corinthians, was it? That we're what? As sinners, we're, we're blind. We're blinded. And we're deaf. We can't hear. We can't understand. What God does, what he did for me, I know when I was saved, is he... For the first, I'd gone to church all my life, but for the first time, I really understood the gospel. Not because God came down and did it. He helps us to understand, to see and to hear, to understand the truths of the gospel and to see the wonders of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. And he it says in that verse that we learn that he does what no teacher earthly teacher can do now verse 45 or I'm sorry yeah verse 45 says it is written in the what prophet singular or plural plural okay so he's not just talking about that word in Isaiah i think he's talking about a number of passages in the Old Testament that refer to this uh, New Covenant teaching that God the Father does that you can see. So, for example, let me read you just this one in Isaiah 31, 30 to 34. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, and this is what God does, this, that no earthly teacher can do. What does he do? He puts God's law where? In our hearts. Okay. Takes it from out there, tablets of stone, you know, written on parchment, scrolls of parchment, to in here, to in your heart. That's what happens. That's what God does. He puts it, not just understanding, but he puts it in ours. He says... And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. Okay, why don't you teach your neighbor? Hmm? Because no one will teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That's because God the Father is our professor. He taught us by putting it in our hearts. Putting it in our understanding. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We hear, understand and see the gospel like we never did before. It's ours and then puts it in our hearts. So this knowing God is all about relationship, right? Isn't that what this covenant is talking about? Jeremiah talking about relationship that we're brought into a personal relationship with God with whom we have access into his presence to have communion with him So remember these three things this knowing God what God the way he teaches us results in this that we love his word It's a scriptural relationship that we have with him now You can't know him apart from his word and you do know him his word it's a personal relationship so we enjoy his presence and it's a covenant relationship we can rest in his covenant that means that there are promises that are ours and he's given made all the provisions for those promises to be ours love his word enjoy his presence and rest in his covenant You end with verse 47. This is the, the result of God's teaching us of what our divine professor does for us. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes, what? Has. Do you see that word? Has. What tense is it in? Present. You already have eternal life. Because of what God did for you. That the moment when you believed. You have that relationship with Jesus. Where you can love his word. Enjoy his presence. Rest in his covenant. You have that relationship. It's yours. So. As I said. Let's close by reading Isaiah 55. So you believe. You come to saving faith only once. Right? But. Jesus is the bread of life for us every day, always. So we come to him every day to feed, to love his word, to enjoy his presence, to rest in his covenant. We come and we enjoy the manna. We're satisfied in Jesus' Listen to these, these words that are for us, all right? From the Old Testament. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in riches. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, that your soul may live, and I will cut an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful loving kindness of David. Behold, I have given him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of Yahweh your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has adorned you with beautiful glory. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh. And he will have compassion on him and to our God. He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout, and giving it seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word uh, which comes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with gladness and be led forth in peace The mountains and the hills will break forth and do shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the needle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be to Yahweh for his renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Amen. May we truly, because we have the bread of life, is ours presently, present tense. May we love his word, enjoy his presence, and rest in his covenant. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that though we were dead in our sins, you were so rich in mercy that you loved us and you made us alive together with Christ. It's all of grace that you intervened and drew us to Jesus. Let us never forget what you've done for us. And may a day never pass that we do not come to the living bread and find our souls satisfied. Satisfied in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.